Welcome to The Atlantic Interview. I'm Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. And for our last episode of 2017, I'm talking with Maggie Haberman of The New York Times, a great White House correspondent, one of the greatest of her generation. We're going to be talking about a whole bunch of things, including and especially Donald Trump's character, his origins, Maggie's fear of flying. We're talking about a whole bunch of things, including... Uh, Glenn Thrush, uh, her writing partner, uh, who was suspended by the New York Times recently. Right after we taped this episode, the Times announced that he'd be coming back to work in January, although not on the White House beat. So here we go. Hello, Maggie. Hi, Jeffrey. And uh, we're meeting uh, on the day that it seems as if Donald Trump is going to get his biggest legislative victory so far uh, on on the tax package. But I want to just do certain housekeeping uh, items. One is that Maggie and I know each other for a long time. So this is not like a this is journalism, but it's sort of like two people talking. It's, just, it's people who know each other having a conversation with this, mi- with large microphones. And we're shouting down mm-hmm. the table exactly, at each other about exactly. New York politics. Correct. First of all, congratulations on all your success this year. You're America's number one reporter. Thanks. I don't think that's true, but thank you. Uh, you are the go-to person to understand the mind of Donald Trump and his decision-making and how this administration works, and that's great. And I, I wanted to talk to you about something that that we've talked about a little bit in the past, which is our particular New York-based understanding of Donald Trump, yep. his thought patterns, his yep. speech patterns, his grandiosity, um, his uh, the way in which he ethnicizes. I don't know if that's actually a word, but in the way in which except, he ethnicizes. It's a word in New York. Um, uh, many conversations that otherwise would not be yes. ethnicized. Yes. Um, so I guess the question is, is he crazy or is he just a New Yorker? I don't realize that those things are mutually exclusive, and some people think they are often one and the same. It's superfluous um, to call a New Yorker right. crazy, I guess. Look, right? I, A, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I never weigh in on um, on that question, which comes up uh, fairly often, but mostly it comes up because people have never seen a political figure at such a high level um, who functions the way uh, Donald Trump does. A lot of it, though, and you are correct, is is very specifically New Yorky, right? Like, I mean, there's a reason that when he has had these meetings with the legislative leaders of, of both parties in Congress, um, that the one he gravitates toward almost always is Chuck Schumer. And it's because they're they're both sort of from the same place. He's um, Chuck from the block. He's Right, he's Chuck from the block. Well, look, I think it was their grandparents' um, Worked together, Trump's father and Chuck's grandfather, something. There was some overlap in New York in the New York real estate world um, between their families, which for Trump is like the main connection you need in life. Schumer appeared on The Apprentice. They do speak a communal language. And uh, I think for Trump, who has felt very out of sorts for much of the year in Washington, I don't think he does anymore the same way, especially now that uh, the tax package is through. But I I think that Chuck was sort of a a familiar face in a sea of abnormal. And a lot of what Trump does, um, New York is all about tribal politics, right? I mean, it's really all about slicing and dicing the electorate, especially in New York City, um, often in pretty crude terms. Within a New York City politics context, his behavior might not seem so abnormal. Is that a fair statement? I think it is a fair statement to say that Two things. One is that Donald Trump is more about style than about policy substance. Um, And the style is inherently New York. The style is inherently some amalgamation of Ed Koch and Rudy Giuliani, um, who were the two mayors during most of his real estate tenure, right? I mean, and there's a, a parochial nature to Donald Trump that I think people don't realize exists and don't expect because they see him as 
this, you know, international businessman. And that's just not how he was known in New York. In New York, he was known as a um, B-list at best commercial real estate developer and who was not taken seriously by the city's elites whose approval he badly wanted. So um, I think people don't realize sort of what lies at the core. And what lies at the core is something very local and elemental to New York. Why couldn't he get the approval of New York's elites? He was an outsider. I think that he... Um, because he's from Queens? Because his father was Queens, rough hewn? Because his... I think that it was basically because he was sort of coarse, for lack of a better way of putting it. It wasn't just that he was from Queens. It but you was, and I both know people in the Manhattan real estate world sure. who are not exactly uh, of Windsor Castle. It's it's just different. There is a roughness about Donald Trump that I think um, was off-putting to a lot of people with a few notable exceptions such as um, uh, such as Estee Lauder, uh, Ron Lauder's mother, um, who um, – uh, really liked him and and really took him under uh, her wing. And for that, Trump has always been very grateful. And it's part of why he's maintained this friendship with Ron Lauder. Um, but look, Trump sort of likes being an outsider because it gives him a certain um, coat of armor that he can wear. And I don't know how much of it was him continuing to make it harder for people to accept him. But for whatever reason, he, you know, he looked, he, he loved the club life. He loved Roy Cohn. He loved being on page six. I mean, these are not things that... Um, at least uh, openly, uh, New York City elites will talk about favoring. Everybody reads the New York Post. They just, many of them just pretend they don't. Right. And that was always his first read. Always. And I think still is one of them. Go to the question of humor, Trump's humor. Mm -hmm. Always struck me as a guy who almost speaks in Yiddish inflections. I know that's <laughs> going to trigger a lot of liberal Jewish critics. Well, but um, you're not wrong, though. I mean, the, the, the even the speech pattern, sentence construction, right. the kind of uh, harsh but funny judgments about people mm -hmm. is that is that a thing that he picked up in Queens, and is that what's? I'm curious to know what's what doesn't translate to people. What translates as one thing that's actually another. I use the the rubric crazy or racist or whatever you want to call it. But sometimes he just reminds me of a New Yorker. I know exactly what you're getting at. I don't really know that how I can um, spell it out. Uh, for your listeners um, better than how you have and certainly better than what they just see in front of their eyes but uh, and here but yeah look there is a there is a you know there's an Archie Bunkerness to him right I mean there is this kind of outer borough guy sitting on the couch yelling at the television thing right. that he is going which literally was Archie Bunker um, on television um, and everything it, is the blacks the, the Jews the blacks the, the Jews, Italians the, the, yeah, the Puerto the, Ricans yeah, yeah, the, the blank love me I mean this is this is sort of um some version of a local party boss in the 1980s. You know, Glenn Thrush and I had this piece a couple of weeks ago with Peter Baker, and an advisor uh, to the president had told us this really critical anecdote about how um, Trump would often talk about um, wistfully um, about a, a Democratic power broker who, according to the president, um, had kept a bat under his desk. It was a really, I thought, powerful observation, um, because that is how he views executive power. He thinks that it is all about kind of, you know, uh, ruling over your fiefdom. He doesn't understand the way our Is system that works. the big lesson for, of the first year that the guy thought he was going to come in yes. and, and rule absolutely? And yes. it turns out that there's no power or not as much power? It's, it's, not, it's not the big lesson, but it is certainly a big lesson. What's yeah. the big lesson? I don't know that there is the big lesson. I think there's a couple what, what of some large lessons. lessons. Um, <laughs> I wish people could see the look on your face as you're asking me this question. What is the look? Um, the is, it's a perfectly acceptable I feel like I'm look. I feel like I'm talking to my, one of my professors and my paper is late. Um, the, I, think another, I think another big lesson um, is the degree to which he views sort of rules and laws as 
obstacles, right? I mean, that's going back to the parochial. Like a developer would. Correct. To going back to the parochial 1980s view of, you know, a real estate developer dealing with Ed Koch's corrupt city government was if you needed to get a project moved, you would get this guy in the borough president's office $100 and then you'd get this. So this is how Donald look- Manis. It- Thank you. This is how There's he- There's a name that has not been invoked explain, in a podcast. Explain for your listeners who that is. Donald Manis was the Queensborough president in he the He was 70s. the Queensborough president in the he 70s and 80s who- Killed himself. Yes, in, in spectacularly dramatic Oof. fashion. Knifed himself. Um, People can Google it. I would well, actually- well, if, you're, if, you're, if you're turning to the Googles after listening to this, um, and hopefully you are listening to this, uh, but the book that I would really suggest everybody read to understand Trump and the way that he, to your point about the sort of local- um, ethnicizing. Um, read City for Sale by Jack Newfield and Wayne Barrett. Wayne Barrett passed away last year, but Wayne and Jack covered um, the Koch era corruption at City Hall and around City Hall. Um, but if you want a taste of sort of the the crucible that Trump came up in and thinks the government is, that's it. Right. So come come back to to lessons of the year. That Donald Trump always has a shadow campaign in his head around almost any decision he makes. I mean, I would say a smaller scale version of it was this Washington Post story, the one about how he had um, vented about rescinding Gorsuch's nomination because he didn't uh, seem sufficiently loyal. Um, You know, he is often having this long conversation in his head uh, about whatever decision he makes. And sometimes it's because he's second-guessing himself, um, and sometimes he's frustrated about something, and you almost never know exactly what it is. Um, I think another big lesson is that it's very hard to discern who is actually speaking for this president at any given moment, and part of that is because he tells people what they want to hear. Part of it is because um, he is incredibly conflict averse and part of it is because he likes playing games. So sometimes he deliberately plants something uh, to create drama. When you say he's deliberately conflict averse, that doesn't scan, at least superficially. I mean, he's always attacking people on Twitter. Do they get to fight back and he hears it? Does he have to face them in person? Well, it's interesting because I don't think he I don't think he actually uses Twitter. I mean, he uses it in a one way megaphone kind of direction. Um, But I don't think he's actually engaged in 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 those fights. But what what are you saying? I mean he he likes to he seems to need conflict. I think he needs sort of like the zots, the zing. He likes the the spark that gets created, but I also think that he does not like interpersonal conflict, one on one, face to face. He you know, the joke of the whole you're fired tagline is he hates firing people. Corey Lewandowski, the campaign manager who was fired, was fired by um Trump's son and by Michael Cohen, his uh, personal lawyer. Most of these people have been um sent off to the gulag by subordinates. And then they're never really in the gulag, though. Well, like he, ne- he never, are. almost never closes the door entirely on anyone. Almost right. never. Um, and, and that included Paul Manafort, by the way, when he was fired. Right. He's never closed the door on you, too, which th- is interesting. I mean, I think if I were not at the Times, I suspect that the door would have been closed a long time ago. But He needs the Times? He's obsessed with the Times. What is that? Just because he grew up in New, New York? York City elites. I mean, that's like there's sort of no bigger avatar of New York City elites than the New York Times. Right. Talk about your relationship a little bit, your journalistic relationship. I'm not assuming uh, a level of uh, a- a- any level of friendship or personal care or anything like that. <laughs> personal, but care. personal care. <laughs> what did, what well, did it mean? <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it means that he doesn't care about you as a person. Oh, I think that's totally true. Yeah. I, I don't. I, I also I think that. Um, I think every relationship with him is transactional. So I think, and I think that uh, not his, every, it, I, almost all his children. She's shrugging. She's giving me the shrug emoji right now. I think he does not view human interactions the way most people do, and so I think that um, he is a deals guy, and everything is through the prism of what kind of deal he can get and what 
gain he can get. Are you saying his love for his children is not unconditional? No. Um, I'm saying that I think that his the only child with him I think he has a clear and easy relationship is his daughter, Ivanka. Um, look, I mean, I think that he had a very high-profile divorce, and I think his oldest son, Don, was the one who was the closest in age um, to be aware of it, and I think that it left a mark. I think that, you know, he didn't talk to his father for a year. Um, I think Eric Trump is the one who, uh, you know, Trump has said to people, he looks like me. He views him in that way. And I think, and I think he truly loves his children. Um, but I think that he, um, I think he might experience fatherhood differently than perhaps you do or other people do. Anyway, um, what was right, your original question? About you. About you and your relationship with him. Oh. How far back does it go? Do you remember it's the first not, time It's not that far. Him? I mean, no, because I mean, the first time I spoke to him was at the Post. and um, The New York Post. Yeah, New York Post. I was at the New York Post for 10 years, 14 years at New York Tabloids overall. And then I went to Politico in 2010. And in 2011 was when he was toying with running. Um, and I talked to him a lot at that point. And so I did this big interview with Roger Stone about what a Trump run would look like. And it got big billboard play and playbook and... And the next day, my phone rings, and it's Rona Graff, Trump's assistant. And she says, Mr. Trump is on the phone for you. Hold on. And that's the thing. is like he just calls. Like you don't – I mean, and to be clear, when I've spoken with him since he's been president, it's always because I've asked for time um, on the record. It's not – He's not, not calling the, you up at night. Well, anyway, but the, the – I mean, I wouldn't – when when I have quoted him in stories, it is because I have asked for the time or I've asked for a statement or something. Right. Um, Mr. Trump's on the phone for you. My phone rings. I pick it up. Uh, you know, hello, Maggie. How are you? I just want you to know that Roger Stone does not speak for me. And I was like, but he's been in meetings with you recently on this topic, and I know this because I know other people who have been in the meetings. That was my first real personal foray into like, oh, we're in a hall of mirrors here. And so, Is it because he doesn't trust anyone? That's part of it. Um, was the other part that he thinks he knows better how to manipulate the president? No question about that. And I think because I think he also is – I think he's, a, he's one of uh, – he's, he's a deeply controlling person. So, Does he – Feel? Do you think that that you understand him in a way that other people no, don't? No, of course not. There's only one subject matter expert on Donald Trump to Donald Trump, but it's Donald Trump. I, mean, I don't think he's. I don't think he. I think he will tell people that I don't. I don't know him that well. Right. He can address. But that. how do you explain the phenomenon of your relationship with him? I think he knows me. I think I covered them from the very beginning. I think that I work for the New York Times, and I think the Times looms large in his imagination. Did you take him more seriously than some of our colleagues? I think I did. Yeah. Why did you choose to take him seriously? I don't think it was, when, a, it was a choice. It was looking at what was in what front of me. What is a choice? Uh, my choice was that, look, I didn't write about they, – they, Sam Nunber called me and said he's going to declare on June 16th and we want you to write it. And I said no. And he said why? And I said because I did this game with him in 2011 and I am not doing this until he actually declares his candidacy. And obviously looking back on it, you could argue that was not a great call. But I think it was perfectly defensible given what I knew at the time and given that he had been thinking about running, quote unquote, for – 30 years um, and never did it. And I didn't think that he would want to release. I didn't think he would do a financial disclosure filing. And I didn't think that he would release his tax returns. And you know what? I was right on the second one and I still am. Um, but uh, so I assumed all of those would be prohibitive. But once he started running, I didn't take it that seriously until the Alabama rally, the Mobile rally where he had like 20,000 people. Like that was a moment. And then in November of 2015, when there was a terrorist attack and his numbers held and went up slightly, the terrorist attack not here, overseas, mm -hmm. but it was clear that something different was going on. And he had um, he had made a lot of inroads that no one else could, and Jeb wasn't going anywhere, and it was November. And at that point, it seemed pretty clear to me that 
you know, if the, the if the game theory that everyone was playing wasn't working, there were still 16 candidates. I, I remember talking to you or emailing with you and you expressing uh, the idea that it was plausible that he would win and everyone around us probably dissented from that. Yes. So, so it was just, it was visceral. It was the visceral experience of seeing this many Americans come out and cheer this show on. It was that, show and, on. that and the fact that people who I know who are really smart in Republican politics talked about how the degree to which his immigration message was resonating with the base. And it really wasn't just the wall. It was really a lot of the the anti-Muslim comments. Do you think he's a racist? I don't know what's in his heart, um, but I also think that at the end of the day, it doesn't sort of doesn't matter. The stuff he is saying is clearly offensive to large numbers of people in this country and outside this right. country. I've never been able, and I say this as an outer borough, Long Island guy, uh, it just reminds me when I listen to him that this is the way people in the outer boroughs, by the way, of different ethnicities in, in Long Island and New Jersey – talk they they see ethnicity they see color they see difference um they see religious differences they talk about it yes. in ways that parts of the country totally agree californians think is anathema you know you're not supposed to talk it's not polite i'm just trying to unpack this i'm trying to figure out what's in his heart but i will move on I, yeah i'm not going to unpack what's in his heart i i mean i think that i think i agree with you that i think that he has been, he has marinated in new york city ethnic politics for most of his life but again, the, the issue is here's why I say I don't I don't know what's in his heart. It doesn't really matter, um, which incidentally was the same answer Al Sharpton gave me when I asked him if he thought Trump was a racist a year ago. I, it doesn't really matter when you're being told repeatedly, sir, what you say is offensive to <laughs> millions of people and you're the leader of the free world and you, you make an active choice not to change at that point. Um, it doesn't really matter whether you are. I, I, don't, I guess I don't really know. A, like this isn't like some act that you're going to catch him in. It's, you can only judge it by the stuff he's saying and the things he does. We're going to pause now and thank our sponsor, but we'll be back with more Maggie Haberman in a moment. Let me ask you about norms for a minute. Please. I'm curious. A lot of people, let's say, let's say, using using the framework you've established, Queens outsider looking longingly in Manhattan, never being accepted. A lot of people change their behavior. They they get rid of their accents. They get they learn table sure. manners. Yes, um, and they try to blend in. That's right. Uh, Donald Trump doesn't respect norms. No, he does uh, not. Maybe try to explain why he has a disregard for the norms that have governed the way presidents act. Does he know that these norms even exist? Um, I mean, I think he's certainly been told at this point that the norms exist. I don't think that he necessarily- Does he hear it when he's told things like that? Yeah, for a while. And then he decides to ignore it. I mean, he hears what he wants to hear. I mean, like, I, you know, it's this is the thing is it's like, one of my favorite things is when people write, isn't there anyone who tells him no in this White House? Like there's tons of people who tell him no. He does what he wants to do. He's a 71 year old man. Um, he raised his family in this like treehouse, essentially, you know, 58 floors above everything taking place below. Um, and this treehouse was adjacent to his office. So he just has to ride an elevator and go into his office and then leave the elevator and go home. In some way, there are a few people who are better uh, acclimated for what living 
in the White House is like, where you leave the residence and you go to the Oval and back upstairs and you don't see normal life. But if you spend decades not seeing normal life, you spend decades not interacting with people outside of your own properties, not going to restaurants where you don't really know everybody, where there isn't a sameness, you make your own weather. And so uh, there are norms he certainly has no interest in finding out exist and other norms that he knows exist and don't care and he has certain impulse control issues, which gets to the Twitter question, right? The main instinct that Donald Trump has is self-preservation, right? So it's like, you know, I was trying to explain this to someone that the Access Hollywood tape was one of the few times in his life that he had experienced real humiliation. And they said, how can you say that? He had two divorces, was written on every front page. The New York Post headline, The Best Sex I Ever Had, which was attributed to Marla Maples, which P.S. she never said, but that's – I digress. Um, he loved that front page. Like that was praise for him. He he was responsible for leaking information about his own divorce. He didn't consider that humiliation. The bankruptcies, he didn't personally go bankrupt. Those were his lenders. Access Hollywood, there was no getting around it. There was no way for him to find the little corner and rip and try to say, see, this isn't real. It was audio. It was his voice. So this is all very new for him. But he does know where certain lines are. For instance, he has not criticized Bob Mueller, the special counsel, publicly once. I mean, what he did do, the closest he came was an interview that he did with Michael Schmidt and Peter Baker and me in the Oval Office in uh, July where he talked about how he would, you know, his personal finances, he thought were a line that Mueller shouldn't cross because that was beyond Russia, beyond the scope. But he hasn't been critical of him. You're describing someone who's more sane than some people think he might Correct, be. Correct, I am. And so the obvious follow-up is, are you not as scared as some people are about his uh, inability to keep us out of extraneous... Uh, inadvisable wars, for instance. Well, I mean, A, we're not in an inadvisable war yet, so I think it's hard to say, you know. It, it, well, maybe there's your proof. Well, I mean, look, there is an irrationality to him. There is an irrationality to how he reacts on certain things. Um, that doesn't mean that he's devoid of his senses. That doesn't mean that he is, you know, gonna he's going to look at this chair and tell you it's a table and believe that it's a table. But he will get up at a rally and do that and tell you that what you're seeing is not what you're seeing. But so, he, he knows he's doing but I that. But th I think more often than people realize he knows he's doing that, yes. The question I have about the treehouse. Mm -hmm. the, the, the gilded treehouse, The yeah. gilded treehouse is how does a guy who's been above the clouds for 20, 30 years yep. have such an intuitive understanding a great question. of the fears of people who make $30,000, $40,000 a year in states he's never really even visited? No, it's a great question. It's a great, I mean, a lot of that is, I think, sort of muscle memory and the preserved and amber aspect of his memory from childhood. I mean, a lot of that is... Resentment. Yep. Um, and a lot of it is what he sees on television. I mean, he... he, he there is a genius there. There is a genius. There's not even a close call. There is a genius there. And, people, and, and here's the thing. As bad as his approval rating is right now, if the election were in June, I think he'd probably still win. If you assume that the same conditions would apply of independent candidates in a handful of states who would take enough votes away that he could, you know, he could win with a, an electoral college majority and lose the popular vote again. Um, but there is a genius there. And people who pretend that it's not um, are part of why he won in the first place. So you're not necessarily scared that this is a lunatic who's going to launch a nuclear war. Are you scared that he's going to cause physical harm through his words to members of our profession? 
Yes, I'm very scared about that. I, I mean, he doesn't understand what we do at all. There has never been a president who has so little understanding of what the White House press corps does. His familiarity with the media was all forged in the 1980s, where it was, you know, if I give you this bit of information about me, I'm going to get a good page six item, right? I mean, all transaction. But it is all transaction. Everything is a transaction. You know, he was so angry at this story that Glenn Thrush and I did about um, his first days in the White House. And we just meant we had an offhand detail about him walking around in a bathrobe. Right. And, um, he went bananas. And I was iced out of the White House for weeks. Um, and it's all, there's, the, you know, he felt, the way it was described to me by several people was he felt like, you know, he had been nice to you guys. And then he felt like you guys did something that embarrassed him. And first of all, like, most people don't think that a bathrobe is embarrassing. Although if you look at the Twitter traffic, people went a little crazy about it. But, um, you know, there's pictures. Of, there's I, pictures a, I would be a little embarrassed if somebody said that I wore a bathrobe. Why? There's pictures of previous presidents in their robes sitting around. I mean, I guess I'm being totally serious. Like, I don't know why. Okay. It just seems okay. um, That's fair. decadent. But, I said, but so anyway, my point is, though, but his reaction wasn't just purely that. It was, and I did this thing for you, so why did you do this to me? Right. And that's how he views the press. Well, I understand that he doesn't have understanding of it. Does he understand what could happen if he triggers? He just won't accept that. He just won't accept that he could do that. That that's a cognitive failure. Yeah, but I don't I don't know how to answer that. I mean, I don't I don't live in his brains. All right, let's let's go to, to an easy that. question. Thank you. Uh, tell me about uh, Glenn Thrush, our mutual friend. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear what you said. No, I'm. Yeah. You said easy. No, uh, yeah. Look, I, there's obviously this is still under review by the Times, so I don't want to um, say a whole lot. It's obviously upsetting for a lot of people, and um, I am glad that he uh, appears to be getting help for. Uh, a substance abuse issue. I'll make this somewhat easier and, and broaden out the optic and say, talk about coming up in journalism in the 80s and 90s in very, very rough New York City press corps, city hall. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious to hear what that might have been like for you in an age before people knew that you're not supposed to do things and say things. It's interesting. Um, it's a great question. I am not someone who has had a ton of those kinds of experiences in terms of people um, behaving inappropriately. I mean, my experience was more just as a young woman reporter. And to be clear, I was in journalism in the 90s. I'm not that old. Um, but, but you the, weren't a journalist in the 80s? I'm 44. So, I guess that's almost impossible. Yeah. I didn't experience what a lot of my colleagues have experienced, but I certainly know that my colleagues experienced it. Um, what I experienced was more things like um, talking to men, not in my workplace, but, you know, as sources or for stories and having them mistake my talking to them for genuine date-like interest, um, which used to happen when I was a bartender too. And, well, and being then, a bartender probably toughened you up a little being bit. A, being a bartender was the best training I had for becoming a reporter. Well, I, I was going to ask that. You were, you were a bartender for quite a while. I was for several years, yeah. Yeah. That just teaches a person how to listen patiently. And approach anybody. I mean, you have to be able to go up to literally anybody and talk to them. You can't be selective. Um and everybody deserves um, an initial shot. Doesn't mean they deserve several subsequent shots, but right. I don't. And I don't mean a liquid shot. I mean a, a, I, a chance I, I, to I, order a drink. <laughs> just, <laughs> just wanted to clarify exactly. Why? I just noticed you're wearing a hamsa. I am. Wow. Um, why was that? From, a, why is that a wow? I don't know. It's not from the Irish side. I have, a, I have a. I have a hamsa. I have a hamsa bracelet too. Uh, I didn't realize you were so uh, kabbalistic. Um. Uh, I'm. I'm. Deeply superstitious. The but, thing um, you hate most is flying, right? Yes. 
Is that the th- literally the thing you hate most? Yes. The hamsa. <laughs> by the way, I should define those of you who yeah, don't I was know what a, a hamsa is. A hamsa is a kind of a Jewish Arab uh, Moroccan a hand uh, that wards off the evil eye. Yes. This one, uh, I believe my mother got me in Israel. Um, this one, I don't remember. Why um, are you so superstitious? I don't know why. Do you have a red string? I don't have a red string. Do you pray on airplanes? I do. Do Actually, I cannot believe you just asked me that. Do you no believe asked me that. in an interventionist God who keeps airplanes in the air and then lets others crash? Well, I have to, considering that I, I, I do pray before every flight, right? I clearly do. No, um, but do you? But do, do you I do actively it? do that? Yeah, no. Do, do I mean, you, do you actively believe that a prayer can I stop believe, a plane from crashing? I, I believe that what I can do is let me make this more comfortable for no, you. Let, I do the same thing. Okay, thank you. Okay. No, that oh, that just bathes me in relief. Thank you. That makes yeah. this much easier. Yeah. Um, I uh, I believe that all I can do is give it up to someone higher than me, and then. I can't worry about it anymore. You know that air travel is the safest form of travel. I've heard that rumor, yes. Beats the hell out of Amtrak. Do you know that um, I took uh, Amtrak to um, the convention in uh, in Florida in 2012? <laughs> I, no, um, I, I, I don't know what this has to do with anything. Um, well, we're kind of on a plane right now that, you know, the country, you know, a lot, a lot of planes no, I was right going to go there, but I didn't want to, I didn't no, want to stretch okay. this to the breaking point. But do you think we're, um, do you think there's the potential that we're being driven off the road here by a completely unpredictable, sui generis president who is merely a symptom of a system that no longer functions the way it was meant to function. I don't really know how to answer that. I mean, I think that, I I, I, but I think that it was a well-phrased question, especially you. your last point about a system that no longer functions the way it was well, intended to function. Well, he's just a symptom of a Correct. Thing. I was going to say that I think is the point that I, I don't, I feel like doesn't get enough attention um, in the, 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 what is often, I think, overly shrill Trump coverage that uh, we got here because of a variety of factors. Um, but I do think that he is—he um, comes with a unique lack of previous preparation for this job, and how that translates, I don't quite know yet. And happy New Year! And happy <laughs> and New on that Year! Note, um, I will God wish bless you a Mer- us, everyone. I will wish you a Merry Christmas because thank I can. You, you can. We're, we're saying that again. By the way, so I've always you. been one of those Jews. Who he has a tree. Oh. Well, no, no, no. Oh, I no, do. But I mm-hmm. always think of, I always uh, I always recognize that it is Christmas and Christians should be greeted with Merry Christmas. And by the way, it's the world's biggest Jewish birthday party. It, that is a true story. I also, um, my husband is not Jewish. My stepmother is not Jewish. And um, we, we have all kinds of mixed messages in our house. So right. there you go. Well, uh, wishing you. Uh, all of the mixed messages. Wishing you many mixed messages <laughs> for 2018. Thank you, Maggie. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Maggie Haberman, for joining us on the Atlantic interview. This was fun. Thank you. The Atlantic Interview is produced by Diana Douglas and Kevin Townsend with production help from Kim Lau. If you like this show, please subscribe and rate us. If you don't like it and you're still listening to me, I think you're going to have to make better choices in 2018. Uh, We'll be back in January with more interviews, so please stay tuned. I'm Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. Happy New Year, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks.